Come with me for the reading of God's Word. We're going to read Acts chapter 25, verses 1 uh, through 12. Chapter 25, verse 1. Now, three days after Festus had arrived in the province, he went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea. And the chief priests and the principal men of the Jews laid out their case against Paul, and they urged him, asking as a favor against Paul that he summon him to Jerusalem because they were planning an ambush to kill him on the way. Festus replied that Paul was being kept at Caesarea and that he himself intended to go there shortly. So, said he, let the men of authority among you go down with me, and if there is anything wrong about the man, let them bring charges against him. After he stayed among them not more than eight or ten days, he went down to Caesarea, and the next day he took his seat on the tribunal and ordered Paul to be brought. When he had arrived, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him, bringing many and serious charges against him that they could not prove. Paul argued in his defense, neither against the laws of the Jews nor against the temple nor against Caesar have I committed any offense. But Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, do you wish to go up to Jerusalem and there be tried on these charges before me? But Paul said, I am standing before Caesar's tribunal where I ought to be tried. To the Jews I have done no wrong, as you yourself know very well. If then I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything for which I deserve to die, I do not seek to escape death. But if there is nothing to their charge against me, no one can give me up to them. I appeal to Caesar. And Festus, when he had conferred with his counsel, answered to Caesar, you have appealed to Caesar you shall go. This is, the, this is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Um, how many of you, if you think back on this week, had to wait for something or someone? I have to raise your hand. That would be all of you. In one way, shape, or form, you waited, didn't you? You waited for the pot to boil. You waited for the coffee to brew. You waited for your body to wake up. You uh, waited as your kids were in the bathroom and you needed to use it. You waited for, some of you are in the process of waiting for children. Some of you are waiting for those children to grow out of diapers, waiting for those diaper children to actually be able to dress themselves someday. Some of you are waiting for a spouse. We wait at traffic lights. We wait uh, all the time. For the Christian, we wait and we wait and we wait, don't we? In fact, I just read a statistic this week that said that the average American spends five years waiting in lines. And six months of that is waiting at traffic lights. Now, here's the thing. I don't know if that's true or if that's just one of those stupid internet statistics, but it feels true, <laughs> right? Because I hate waiting. Like, I really hate waiting. My kids know that. My family knows that. Worst of all, I guess, God knows that. So, so I'm convinced, I think my family is convinced that God uses waiting in my life as a tool of sanctification, right? So if I'm at Costco and we go there as a family, if I choose a line, they all know he's cursed. <laughs> Take another line because, because, I mean, I could be in the shortest line, two people ahead of me, something like that, and everybody else is, is lined to the back of the store, but there we are, and it will be my line where the manager is called. It will be my line where the dude pulls out his checkbook in the 21st century and writes a check. It will be my line that the person, the lady, decides, oh yeah, uh, I didn't realize I had to pull out my credit card until you told me the amount, so now I'm going to start searching, right? Right? Wait, wait, come on. 
I hate waiting. I hate waiting, right? Um, Tish Harrison Warren, uh, we're reading a great book as a staff called uh, The Liturgy of the Ordinary. And in her book, she says this. She says, Christians are people who wait. We live in the liminal time and the already and the not yet. Christ has come. He will come again. We dwell in the meantime. We wait. I think we know this is true, but how many of us, don't raise your hand, how many of us enjoy waiting? Like, man, I wish the coffee would just take longer because I just love waiting. I wish I could wait in this red light forever. Like, we don't. Now, why? Why don't we love waiting? Because I think for most of us, waiting equals unproductivity right? Waiting feels like wasted time. Waiting is time where we should be progressing forward, but we feel stuck. We feel like nothing's happening. There's no forward momentum. Now, why am I mentioning this to you here as we're looking at Acts 25? Because where, where is Paul in Acts chap, chapter 25? He's in prison waiting. And I want to just sort of camp on this idea as we look at Acts chapter 25. And I'm really not going to preach through this passage. I want, to just, I, want, I want you to see this. Here's a principle here. Paul's just waiting. And in fact, uh, he's been waiting a long time. By the time you get to Acts chapter 25, Paul has been in prison for two years and no progress has been made on his case. It's gone nowhere, Right? And, and I think, I, I have to wonder if Paul's not feeling a bit impatient. Look at verse 11 of chapter 25. Like Paul just goes, look, I'm standing before Caesar's tribunal where I ought to be tried. The Jews I've done no wrong. You know this, Festus. If I'm a wrongdoer, if I've committed anything for which I deserve to die, I don't seek to escape death. But there's nothing to charge. Give me to Caesar. Let somebody do this. Kill me or release me. But let's get this thing settled. You feel like this? And there he stands just waiting. Now let's rewind the clock and remember where all this started. In chapter 21, Paul is arrested in Jerusalem and thrown into custody, waiting. In chapter 22, he's questioned by Lysias the tribunal, still waiting. In chapter 23, they convene, Lysias convenes a council of Jews, perhaps the Sanhedrin, Paul's still waiting. In chapter 24, he goes before Felix, still waiting. In chapter 25, he's before Festus, still waiting. In chapter 26, he's in front of King Agrippa, still waiting. And by the time we get all the way to chapter 28, Paul is still left in prison. So let me give you just a sense of timing here. Most theologians believe Paul was arrested in Jerusalem Somewhere in the year 57 AD, he is, he is let out according to church history. Paul actually does get out of prison briefly in Rome somewhere around the year 63. So the great apostle Paul, the most profound, brilliant defender of Christianity, perhaps that's ever lived outside of Jesus, is stuck in a jail cell for six years. He's ultimately captured, brought back, put in prison again, never to get out. He's martyred somewhere around the year 67, 68. 
six plus years for the Apostle Paul in jail. Now, here's what I believe. And I don't just believe this because I want to believe this. I believe this because it's what the Bible teaches us. God is absolutely sovereign. God knows beginning. God knows the end. He knows everything in between. This means that God knew Paul would go into prison. He knows Paul is in prison. He knows how long he will be there. Every part of this is God's will. You get this? Every part of this. Paul in prison is God's will. In God's economy, it is better for Paul to be in prison than for Paul to be free. Paul is exactly where God wants him to be. Now, that seems crazy to me. Why? Like, what's the point? How is chained up Paul better for the advancement of God's agenda than church planting Paul? You follow me? How is six years waiting in a prison better for Christianity, better for Paul, better for what? The world evangelization than for Paul to have six years of active missionary work. How's this better? Let me pause that for a second. Come over here and let's remember what Luke is doing in the book of Luke and Acts. Part of what's happening in the book of Luke and Acts is you've got this, you've got this guy, Luke. He's writing to a man we know from the opening verses of both, a man named Theophilus. Theophilus is likely, let's say, a, a wealthy benefactor, perhaps a young Christian, and he wants Luke to go out and research and say, Luke, how'd this happen? How did Christianity go from the backwaters of Galilee, this just handful of people, all the way to now, by the time of Luke's writing, this is a worldwide phenomenon, certainly the world as it was known back then. How did this happen in just a few short decades? Luke, go tell me. So what does Luke do? Luke goes and he writes the book that we know as the gospel according to St. Luke. And he tells us there's this man, Jesus, and he's the Messiah, and he's the son of God, and he comes to earth, and he trains disciples, and he does miracles, and people are getting saved, and they're coming to him, and they're believing in him. Okay, makes sense. He dies on a cross. He rises from the grave. His apostles know about this. We get to the book of Acts, and Jesus says, now you go out and you're going to be my witnesses. And they begin to go out. And what happens to the book of Acts? I mean, just time after time, it's like a drumbeat. They preach, people believe. They preach, people believe. Now listen, you're Theophilus. You're reading this so far. As you get through Luke and you start getting into Acts, you're like, okay, this all makes sense. This is all exactly how I would anticipate it to go. And he starts to throw a little curve and going, oh yeah, but... You also need to know there was intense persecution and Paul was almost stoned to death and thrown out of cities and angry mobs followed him and riots ensued. Okay, okay, so God uses persecution, God uses suffering. Oh, and oh yeah, part of the Christian phenomenon, Theophilus, is that the great apostle Paul got thrown in prison for six years. Now, this is stunning. By by the way, I want you to notice something as you read the book of Acts. Pretty much all the way up to the point of of Paul's arrest, you see the drumbeat I was talking about. You see he preaches, people believe. He preaches, people believe. Some cities, it's this overwhelming revival. Others, like, you know, a few people believe, whatever. But there's always been fruit to Paul's preaching, okay? Have you seen this? Until chapter 21. 
He preaches to the crowds, nothing. He talks to Lysias, nothing. He preaches, uses an opportunity to talk about the resurrection to the Sanhedrin, nothing. He stands before Felix, nothing. He stands before Festus, nothing. He stands before Agrippa, nothing. He was batting a thousand, he's batting zero. Now, you would be excused for wondering, why God? Like, how is this part of your plan? Why would you do this? See, let me say it this way. Is this the way you'd write the story? Never. You would never think to yourself, you know, you, you would, this is so counterintuitive, so unexpected, you would never think to yourself, you know what I want to do? I want to take this brilliant man, Paul, I want to take all of his strategy and mission and church planting zeal and all of that, and I want to take him, I want to throw him and shut him up in a prison. No one would write that story except God. Because this is the story. Now, why, God? Why are you doing this to Paul? Why does God put his most articulate spokesperson in a jail? You know what the answer is? I have no idea. But I don't understand the why, but I do see the what that was produced. You know, it's, it's from prison that Paul writes um, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, Philemon, 2 Timothy. Like this is what God is doing. God is got Paul in prison and out of that imprisonment comes some of the most wonderful, glorious expounding of the gospel that we have in writing, of Paul's writing in the New Testament. And think about this. Think about all that Paul was learning while he was in prison. And if you wonder what he learned, turn with me, or you don't have to, I'll show you it on the screen, to Philippians chapter 4. This is a very well-known passage of scripture, but just let me, let me just point something out to you. Look at, look at how it just reads. Paul says, from prison, not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound in any and every circumstance. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That is not a tattoo for athletes. That is a banner for those who wait, those stuck. Did you hear how Paul said this? I learned this. Now, look, I think all of us know people who are, uh, they seem to be, right? They seem to be naturally patient. I mean, you're at the, they're at the light, and they're like, hey, what, what's the rush? Come on, we're together. This is good. We can just enjoy the moment. It's okay if coffee takes a little longer, we're all good, right? I hate people like that. <laughs> I shouldn't say that because Michelle is like that and I love Michelle. And uh, uh, it's very good for me. Um, well, here's the thing. I don't think Paul is naturally patient. 
He's saying, I learned these things. These were learned things for me. These are things I had to go through, right? I, I didn't just go with the flow. I wasn't just naturally patient. So what happens? God says, you know what, Paul? I'm going to put you in situations. I'm going to force you to sit in my providence. And what are you going to do with that? Man, I, I got to wonder, was Paul ever antsy, annoyed? laying in his cot in his prison and looking up at the ceiling and going, my gosh, think of all the things I could be doing if I were out of here. Look, I don't know all the thoughts flitting through his head, but I do know that apparently he humbled himself, he submitted himself to the providential hand of God, and out came Ephesians, and out came Philippians, and Colossians, and 2 Timothy, and Philemon. Out came things like Philippians chapter 2. We all know, I mean, this is, a, this is one of the most beautiful hymns about Jesus ever written. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied or made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant being born the likeness of of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And he goes on, therefore, God highly exalted him. That's what Paul's saying, man. I, it's in prison that I'm receiving the humbling and realizing that I'm stuck in a place that is less than the best. And yet this is the very thing God did to Jesus Christ. He's doing in me. Philippians, he's doing in you. And just a few verses later, what does he say? He says to the Philippians, in light of this great hymn of Christ, in light of this reality, do all things without grumbling or disputing. From a prison cell, he says that. I'm waiting. Do everything without grumbling or disputing. Paul learns all of this waiting in prison. What are you waiting for? Is he waiting for anything? You're at a station in your life where you feel like I'm, I'm kind of just in this holding pattern. I'm waiting for God to do something. I'm waiting for my life to get moving. And by the way, or I'm waiting for this trauma to end, or I'm waiting for the spouse, or I'm waiting for my marriage to be healed, or I'm waiting for the baby to finally be given to me. I've been waiting for the cure to come. I'm waiting, waiting, waiting. How is this possibly good, God? How are these circumstances better than just setting me free? Wouldn't it be better, God, if I could get on with my life? Think, think of all walking through your Bible, walking through church history, all the people that waited. Joseph waits in a prison. Abraham waits for a promised son. Moses waits for the promised land. David waits for the promised kingdom. Jesus waits for a promised ministry. We, we could go into, into church history. John Bunyan, Pilgrim's Progress, waits in a prison. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, Waits in a prison. Martin Luther King, letters from a Birmingham jail. 
waiting, waiting, waiting. Christians are people who wait and wait and wait. And so what happens when that happens? When we find ourselves in the waiting that seems like it never, it's never going to end. What, what do we do? What are we tempted to do? On the one hand, we're tempted to sort of take matters in our own hand. On the other hand, we're tempted to say, God doesn't care. So I'm done with this whole God business. I'm out. I'm going to go take matters into my own hands. I know what's better for me, and it's not waiting. Everybody else in the world seems to be getting what they want. God, where's my share? What happens? We get impatient with God. We get impatient with life. I want to be out of this. See, think about how impatience is the root of so much sin. Let me just speak about myself here for a moment. I'm, I'm the most impatient person I know. Now, maybe there's somebody in here who objectively is more impatient than me, but I don't know your heart. I know mine, and I know I'm ridiculous about things. And I know this, that over the course of my life, I can't tell you how many times I feel like the Spirit has brought to mind how my impatience is the root of so much of my sin. My impatience is what causes my mouth to fly. My impatience is what causes me to behave in very unchristian, unpastoral ways. This is the story of Christianity. It was impatience that caused Adam and Eve to take the fruit. It was impatient that caused Moses to strike the rock. It was impatient that caused David to take Bathsheba. It was impatient that caused Abraham to take Hagar. Hans Urs van Balthazar. That's a mouthful, right? Listen to what he says about impatience. He says, God intended man to have all good, but in God's time. And therefore, all disobedience, all sin consists essentially in breaking out of time. Patience is the basic constituent of Christianity. The power to wait, to persevere, to hold out, to endure to the end, not to transcend one's own limitations, not to force issues by playing the hero or the titan, but to practice the virtue that lies beyond heroism, the meekness of the lamb which is led. Man, that's good. We break out of time. And God says, I want everything good for you in my time, right? But hear me, Christian. I, I want to make sure you understand this. We do more than wait. What gives us energy? What gives us capacity and motivation for waiting? The answer for the Christian is hope. There's hope. There's hope that God is doing something. This is what gives us the strength to wait. In fact, this is how Paul talks when it comes to patience. Romans chapter 8. Now, I want you to just hear me. Just for, before you put it up there on the screen, hold that just for a second. I want you to notice how much Paul, how much of the language here is this kind of angsty, waiting, impatient perhaps, and yet underneath all that is hope. Now, watch this, right? 
For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pain of childbirth until now. Now stop right there just for a second. What kind of waiting is childbirth? It's a hopeful waiting, isn't it? It's like you're actually producing something. I'm not just waiting in pain. I'm waiting in the pain of childbirth. Something's coming. Something glorious is coming. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption of sons, the redemption of our body. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Now let me say something about hope. Um, Christian, when you see hope in Scripture, it's not the hope I have that maybe Michelle and I can go to Italy someday. That may or may not happen, right? May, may not. It's a certainty. It's a hope that he's going to say in other places, hope doesn't put us to shame. It's a kind of hope that says this is, there's this rock-solid guarantee that something glorious is coming. You have, you have, you're, you're, all, all that waiting is filled with hope because God is doing something. God is producing something. God is creating something. See, so, so all of the waiting we do, all of those tedious little things we wait for in some ways are shadows of the big wait, of God doing something, this time in between, this liminal time. And so now we're living each day in light of a future reality. Our best life is yet to come. You get this? It's not now. It's coming. It's coming. See, so this means that no waiting is wasted, Christian. None. Right? Just because we can't see what God is doing doesn't mean that God is not working. When, I want to quote Tish Harrison Warren again. She says this. She's talking about her friend. He's a farmer. And listen to what he says. My friend Steve, the farmer prophet reminds me that a fallow field is never dormant. This is wonderful. As dirt sits waiting for things to be planted and grown, there is work to be done invisibly and silently. Microorganisms are breeding and moving and eating. Wind and sun and fungi and insect are dancing, a delicate dance that leavens the soil, making it richer and better and readying it for planting. Do you see this? I just see dirt. And there's a thousand things happening, a thousand wonderful things, a thousand productive things, a thousand things that lead to growth. So Christian, hear me. You've never had an unproductive day in your life. That's amazing, isn't it? I know, I know we feel that way. You can't believe it. I just spent three hours in traffic. What a waste. There's not a wasted moment. You've never wasted a day in Christ. I need to remember that. I need to remember that in the line at Costco. I need to remember that as I wait for things that I hope for. I need to remember that. I need to remember this. Somebody wrote a book several years ago. I love the title. It's called... I think this is the title. It's called The Three and a Half Mile an Hour God. 
You know why it's called that? Because three and a half miles is basically the speed you walk. And the idea there is Jesus walked everywhere, didn't he? There is never an account of Jesus running in a panic. Oh my gosh, I forgot, right? He never does. He walks. Lazarus is dead. I'll get there. I got this. See, the three and a half mile an hour God isn't on my timetable. Like, we kind of want to go, hey, can I see a little urgency in your step, Jesus? Like, at least show me you're energetic about this, right? And he's saying, I'm just going. At the pace I go, I'm not on your timetable, Chris. And I'm doing a thousand things under the surface that you can't see. I, um, I watched a documentary. Now I don't know where I saw it. Um, but <laughs> uh, it was about plants. And you're probably thinking, dude, you've got to get a life. Like, um, uh, and I, he, here's what it was. It was, it was a time-lapse um, photography that basically was showing you what happens on a forest floor, a jungle floor, when one of these big trees, you know, in the canopy, when they fall. I know this sounds ridiculous, so just bear with me, all right? So the tree falls, and what happens? It opens up a hole of sunlight onto the forest floor, right? So what happens in that moment? It's cleared out all this brush, the slamming to the ground, all this kind of thing. What now goes on? And what it shows over time lapse is how all the plants rush in. Like, they want the sunlight. Man, this is this glorious once-in-a-lifetime event where the sun is shining on us. We're going to grab it up. And so these broadleaf plants, boom, they come in. They fan themselves out sort of greedily, if you will, taking up all the sunlight, and they grow like crazy. Um, and then, uh, then, then a few days, or I don't know, it's time lapse, like two-year process, but, but these, these tiny... Uh, trees start to pop through, right? So they're, they're, they're popping up, and you're like, oh, okay, so this is what's going to happen, right? Until then, sort of these vines come in, and they start growing towards these trees. They wrap themselves around the tree, totally cover it, and there comes a point when literally thousands of vines have smothered these trees, and there is no sunlight for them to get. You're thinking it's over. And then one day, something like very unexpected, something uh, amazing, astounding happens. This one tree chunk just kind of boom, shoots out of all of that and begins to grow just exponentially. And over this two-year period, it grows and it winds its way. It gets above. It's taller than any of the broadleaf plants. It's taller than anything on the forest floor. And it finally winds its way up. It reaches the canopy. It spreads out its leaves and it begins to grow. And that thing now will last for centuries. Now, what happened? All those plants racing for the sunlight sacrificed longevity and sustainability, if I can say it this way, for short-term gain. How did the tree win? It did something really counterintuitive and unexpected. It waited. And in the waiting, 
it shot its roots deeper and deeper and in there found sources of water, nutrients, and life that all the other plants passed up. All because it waited. Do you see what's happening here? Do you see what God might be doing in the waiting? Richard Foster, speaking to Christians about Christians, says this, the desperate need today is not for a greater number of intelligent, let's put the word Christians there, or gifted Christians, but for deep Christians. You know what waiting does? Waiting, if we'll let it, produces patient people. And patient people become deep people. Now hear me, deep people become resilient people. They become people who say, I'm not going to be blown over. Like now I've got roots that are way deeper. All because of waiting. Do you, do you remember do you remember that great verse in scripture? You probably remember the main part of it. Maybe you don't remember what comes before it. Isaiah chapter 40 verse 30. The prophet, God says to the prophet, even young men shall faint. Like, so here's the picture. Like there's this robustness to youth. Man, they can run forever. They seem to be like they have boundless energy. And the prophet is saying, even those, even people like that that have the strength of youth will fail. And then he goes on to say the one that we all know, or lots of us know. But the one who waits upon the Lord will renew his strength. He'll mount up with wings like eagles. He'll run and not be weary. He'll walk and not faint. The one who waits will drive his roots deeper. And then one day he shoots through and God begins to grow him, her, into exactly what he intended to do. Christian, do you see this? Some of you are waiting today, waiting for a job, waiting for the doctor's report, waiting for, for the advancement, waiting for your marriage, waiting for this issue that you're facing, waiting somehow that this will be, something will be resolved. Waiting, waiting, waiting. And like Paul, will we submit to the sovereign hand of God, driving our roots deeper so that so that glorious gospel things like Ephesians and Philippians and Colossians and Philemon, 2 Timothy come out. You know what Paul says to Timothy in 2 Timothy? He says, remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal, but the word of God is not bound. These are some of the last words Paul would ever write. And because you know what I've learned in prison? I've learned that my worth to God um, is not just about what I do. God's doing some things in me here in prison. But Timothy, here's the thing with the word of God. God doesn't need me to advance the kingdom. The word of God isn't bound. It goes forward. God's doing amazing things even while I'm waiting. 
Let's pray. Father, um, this is a hard sermon. It's hard for me because I know how I struggle. I know it's so hard for many of us because I can't, I don't know of one person who says, man, more than anything, I love waiting. And I love especially waiting on those, those hard moments of my life where I just want this to be over. And so, God, I pray you'd help us to be, you'd help us to be um, people that through waiting become patient. Through patient, we grow deep. And through growing deep, we become resilient. Our roots shoot down into the rich soil and water, finding nutrients in life where everything else has passed over. When everyone around us is busy and seems like they're growing, when it seems like everything's going well, God, and there we are stuck underneath the vines. And Father, that we'd realize you're still doing something even when we can't see it. And so I pray for my brothers and sisters. God, I know that in this room, there there are people who are waiting. They're, They're waiting. They're hurting in their waiting. They're waiting for a child. They're they're, they're waiting for a cure. They're waiting for this thing that seems to haunt them to be done. They're waiting for the grief to go away. And so, Father, I pray that what they'd hear this morning is you haven't forgotten. You are not slow as some count slowness, but you are patient. You are patient working and doing in us things, even far more patient than we are with ourselves. And you're at work in our hearts right now. And so we praise you for that. And we receive that by faith because we can't see it with our eyes. So encourage our hearts today. And God, I pray, I pray secondly for people in this room that maybe they came today and they wanted to hear the gospel. And Father, I pray that today would be a day where they would hear they don't have to wait. Here's one area you would say, you don't have to wait one second They'll have to put it off one day more that if they will turn from their sin and turn in faith to Jesus Christ, and God, I don't need to point out what all their sins are. God, some people walk in here with sin before their eyes that is 3D, high definition, in full color. They know exactly how they've sinned. They feel the wretchedness of it. They feel the brokenness of it. And I pray today that they would turn and they would not wait one more day. They would turn from that and turn in faith to Jesus and say, Jesus, you are my only hope. Take care of the sin. Rid this of me. Take it upon yourself. And Jesus, you would bear that sin. Bear it up, God. Take it on and save them, I pray. And we ask this in Jesus' name.